Hello and welcome to the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson, the podcast designed to give you all the financial advice you'll ever need. This is episode 98, where in a moment we chat diversification. That's today's show topic and it's on the way, like I say, in just a second. But please bear in mind, if you have a general financial query, you're in the right place because we have an enormous resource of free advice right here. You can access it all simply through delving into our back catalogue of shows. Because in our programmes to date, we've featured loads of stuff, pensions, investing, wills and power of attorney, loads more as well. You name it, we've done it pretty much. And last week, we had a mortgage market update. Remember, we can drill down and focus on pretty much anything. Find the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get us there. As I say, an enormous resource all available for free. Find our previous shows after listening to this one and have a binge on what you need. While you're there, if you could rate and review us, for instance, you could tell us what we need to address to help you out and follow the show. And in that way, you'll get that episode when we record it next time. I'm John Ellis, and usually here's where I'd say, and with me as always, the star of our show, Phil Anderson. Hi, Phil, but that would be futile on this occasion because, well, Phil's not here. Almost 100 episodes in, and now he's become social biz. He's not even turning up for his own programme. Standing in for Phil this week while he's off at his halls is Andrew Schooler. Hi, Andrew. Hi, John. Thanks for having me along today. No problem. Okay, so this week we're discussing diversification. Here are the things I know about it. I mean, I, I know we've done at least one show about it before. I know that, that Phil's a fan of diversification. I, I don't know whether that's, you know, right the way across the, the sort of financial advice spectrum or if it's just Phil. Aside from that, I'm starting to struggle a bit. I, I'm thinking it's a don't put all your eggs in one basket kind of approach, but I'm stretching a bit at this point. So maybe you could give us a reminder of what diversification actually is. Yeah, you make a really good point about don't put your eggs in all, all your eggs in one basket. You're absolutely right. I, I refer to diversification as spreading the risk. So diversification is looking at different areas to invest money. So whether that be in asset classes, and we'll come to that later on, or whether it's investments, it's pensions, it's property, it's classic cars, for example. Okay. That can all be seen as diversification. So you are um, avoiding, like you say, putting all your eggs in one basket and having, um, and, and having a broad uh, mix in your investments. You see, the, the other side of this, though, is why diversify? Because surely, you know, if you're onto a good thing, you want to stick everything you've got on that, you know, like put all my money on red. Yeah, absolutely. And where that could be a good route, if it does well, it also has the potential to go horrendously wrong. So, so look at that. I, I'm going to stick everything on red. What happens if black or green comes up? Um, you've lost everything. And and that's really where diversification comes into play. It's you've got red, you've got black, you've got green, you've got everything covered. We don't know what is going to be the best thing tomorrow, a week's time, and a month's time, and a year's time. So if we're able to spread across as many different areas as possible, we know we're going to have that one area that is doing really, really well covered within the portfolio or covered within the um investments that we've set up for clients okay so what are the the areas the diversification that we 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 get to be excited about but but also wary of essentially we're going to go right and wrong what are the pros and cons yeah uh, absolutely and diversification some people could think of diversification as i have three different shares in different companies well yeah absolutely that could be seen as diversification but it could all be 
large American tech companies, for example. So you think, well, I've got shares in Facebook. I've got shares in Google. I've got shares in Snapchat. And that's a really interesting one today, if you look at their share price, where you you think, well, I've spread my risk. I'm not all in one company. It's all in the same area of the market. So if something goes wrong with regards to you know tech industry in America, everything is then going to fall. So some people's approach may be, yep, that's diversification. What we look on diversification as being, it's not just asset classes. It's not just one specific type of industry. But we're also looking at geographical regions. So America, Europe, UK, all across the world. So I would class that as diversifying an investment. So it's you don't have the same geographical risks. But we're also then looking at, as we say, the different asset classes um, within there. So it's not just stock market related. There are many, many other ways to invest money, not just in the stock market. Okay. I, I, the, the one thing that <laughs> I, I always refer back to this, the, the one time that I actually had a little bit of money and it was invested was in an ISA when I was when I was young and I think I inherited some money from granny or something like that and I remember it was split up this money that I put to them and they put some in what they called this is going back a long time but I think they'll probably get the idea some was put into a western European fund which was seen as you know dependable but might not get that high a, a return on, on your investment and some was put here and some was put there and then some was put in what they called an Asian fund where they said it's it's more it's it, it's got more chance of getting a high return but also it's not entirely dependable it could go up and down we're, we're not entirely sure but it's worth investing in just to see we'll put a little bit there so it's like it, it's taking that money and, and popping it about various different regions as you say various different asset classes is what you were talking about there now what are the different asset classes that people can invest in yeah so when i refer to asset classes we're really kind of splitting things down into uh, different areas. So let, let's speak about equities, first of all. So that's the first asset class that we look at. So equities is stock market related. And as you said, yeah, that can be Europe, Western Europe. It can be Asia. It can be America. It can be emerging markets as well. And that's your kind of like South America, your non-developed Asian countries where there's a huge potential for growth, but there's also a huge potential for volatility. And by that, I mean going down as well. So equities are, or stock market related is one asset class. Bonds and gilts are another area that we look at when we are uh, putting together investments. Now, bonds and gilts are loans to large corporations and governments. Like you or me, when we borrow money, we have to pay interest back, as do they. So when they need to raise money, they'll say, right, I'm going to issue X amount of bonds and they're going to be over a 10-year period and we're going to pay 3% interest on that. So from an investment point of view, it's it's relatively stable. It's a a lot more stable than uh, equities are, but also the potential for returns are a lot lower. So we would refer to that as a stability element within a portfolio. So again, there's diversification in there as well because bonds have credit ratings. So if a company that has a fantastic credit rating wants to borrow money, they're going to be paying a lot less interest on that bond. Whereas 
a startup company that doesn't have much of a track record or is quite volatile, they'll be classed as a high risk, um, but also they'll be paying quite a lot of interest on their bonds. So, you know, th there's, there's swings and roundabouts within bonds. It isn't just all, this is nice and safe. There is an element of risk there because, you know, in that, if the company was to go bust, you're one of the last people to be getting your money back. Mm -hmm. So there, there's still potential to lose money within bonds. We also then look at commercial property. Now, commercial property is a really interesting one at the moment. Historically, commercial property has been seen as retail and offices. Now, like a lot of people, a lot of people are working from home. So many people are doing Amazon shops, that side of things. We're not going onto the high street. So Commercial property has really fallen down, I would say, in, in the percentage holdings in a portfolio. But interestingly, we're seeing some fund managers go into warehousing as a commercial property. Now, if you think about warehousing and the growth of online shopping, all of these companies need somewhere to hold their stock. So that's really been the growth area and the commercial property side of things has been really interesting. But finding funds that are doing that is very difficult. So we're seeing a lot of portfolios either dropping the commercial property side of things or having a very, very small percentage holding compared to what we had in the past. Final asset class I would look at is cash. Cash isn't just money held in the bank, but cash can be foreign exchange. It can be dollars, it can be euros, it can be yen. Again, there is elements of volatility and elements of fluctuation in currency. So there is potential for money to be made there. Uh, but again, like the bonds and gilts, it's, very, it's, it's a lot lower volatility than equity side of things. So having all of these elements in a portfolio makes a, a, a very interesting structure for investors going forward. Okay, so uh, you can diversify say, by having lots of shares in different companies and countries. That sounds like a good way to go about it, is it? Uh, absolutely. I, again, I come back to the point is we don't know what is going to be good in a week's time, in a month's time, in a year's time. <laughs> so trying to... to the, thing, yeah, the thing I was going to come back at you, you know, we don't know what's going to be good in a week's time, in a, a year's time. Is, well, well, why would we come to you? <laughs> it's the point is nobody knows and you've got the best place to focus on it yeah a hundred percent and yeah. and anybody that says they know what's gonna be good in a month's time in a year's time's lying at the end of the day because nobody knows we don't have a crystal ball all that we can do is go on a structure that we've that's worked in the past we assess a client's attitude to risk, and that's a whole other conversation, to then determine how we put together our portfolio to determine where funds should be invested. But yeah, you know, the thing with diversification is, is we try and spread the risk as much as we can, because as soon as you start trying to second guess what's going to happen in the markets, more than likely you're going to get it wrong. And we've seen this ourselves. There's been a lot of people who have done day trading, as in, you know, during lockdown, there was nothing going on. They went onto an online trading platform and decided, oh, I'm going to buy a few shares. I'm going to see how I get on. And they get to a point where they then get scared. It's a case of, I'm now not comfortable with this and with this volatility anymore. 
I want to give this money to a finance professional like ourselves who can then put together a portfolio and let us worry about it rather than the client. <laughs> that, that actually happens a lot, does it? And, and you'd be surprised. I've had quite a few clients who did that during lockdown. They had spare money. They weren't going out. They weren't going That's, on holiday. Yeah. They, they, they went on to online trading platforms. What? It was great fun because you know they were working from home. They could spend time doing it. Now a lot of people are working back in a normal way. Mm. They just don't have time to do it. And with those types of investments, you have to be looking at it on a daily basis. So it never even occurred to me that I could go and do that. All, I, all we did was put a decking in the backyard. <laughs> That's where our money went. And yeah, so- I, I, absolutely. Us, <laughs> us too. We did our garden. Yeah. <laughs> and this is it in simple terms. Does diversifying mean lower risk to investors in Andrew? Um, what I would say is not necessarily reducing risk but it's managing volatility. It's managing the, the, the highs and lows. So, you know, a client still could be very comfortable about having all their money invested in equities, so stock market related, but if it's spread out and it's diversified, we're then putting them into a less volatile investment than maybe they would have been if they were just had a couple of shares um, okay. in, in different companies. Whenever we're talking about investing in anything, and you've mentioned it a couple of times in this podcast, we talk about attitude to risk. Yes. Briefly, I mean, it's a fairly straightforward concept, but it, it's it's if I come into you and I am, you know, Mr. Moneybags, and I say, you know what, this this million, this is just my fun million. So I've got another 15 million sitting over here. I want you to take this and and go and diversify for me spread it around a bit and, and go and actually just take care of it for me. This guy, he doesn't care what happens to that one million. His attitude to risk is quite high. But if it's an inheritance that you're, you're talking about and it's the only money that you have, then presumably their attitude to risk would be much lower. Absolutely. So there, there's two things that we look at when we are setting up investments for clients. We've got attitude to risk. And we've also we also look at a thing called capacity for loss as well. So attitude to risk, it's how we assess it. It's a series of questions. We look at how they would feel if funds go down in value. How would they feel on aspirations for the future? What experience have they had in the past? So that, that's the real attitude to risk side of things. But the other side of the coin is capacity for loss. And depending on where they are within their life cycle, as in, starting work, end of work, anywhere in between, you know, retirement, et cetera, their capacity for loss will be completely different. And what I mean by capacity for loss is what impact would a 10, 15, 20, 30% loss of value of your investment affect your standard of living going forward? Now, the, the, the prime example is somebody who is at retirement. They have amassed all their money in their pensions, and now they need that to live on for the rest of their life. Their capacity for loss is going to be a lot lower than somebody who's 23 years old and is starting out their career in whatever industry they work in, and they know they've got 45 years potentially of work ahead of them. So their capacity for loss can be a lot greater because the impact of volatility at the start of their investment isn't going to affect their standard of living at the end. Whereas somebody who has amassed all their funds, a 30% drop in value, 
would have a massive impact in their standard of living going forward. So that's really, really important to, to assess that along with the attitude to risk. And also, I mean, I suppose you might have, you know, 20 quid in your back pocket and not an awful lot else. You want to invest, you, you, your, your attitude to risk might be, well, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but but your capacity, as you're saying, is is virtually nil in that uh, in that uh, scenario. You got it. It all comes down to what impact is a loss going to have on that investment, and that's quite a negative way of looking at things because we always want investments to grow, but we've got to be realistic that funds go up as well as down. So we need to assess that part as well. Okay, I was going to say this next bit is the $64,000 question, but that's probably a stupid thing to say to put any sort of number on it. But you know what I mean. We were talking earlier about asset classes and, and how you were saying nobody really knows what's what's going to happen in the next week, the next year, the next 10 years. But presumably you look over, you said, a structure. So really what you're looking at is history, I suppose, and, and how things have performed and how things look like they might perform going forward to the best of your abilities, how you would assess that. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to ask you, what are the asset classes you think that might do well in the next, say, year or two? Okay, so if we look at history and if we're looking at growth, history has always told us that equities are where growth is. So it doesn't matter if we're looking at FTSE 100, that's the 100 top companies in the UK, or some of the American indexes. Where we're going to see growth now going forward is always going to be in the equity markets. The stock markets is, is where we see growth. It's where we see volatility as well. We've seen that in the last six months. A lot of the indexes have, have um, you know, since the start of January 2022, we have seen a bit of a dip. But this is where we're going to see growth going forward. We're at a low point just now. It's very, very interesting time to be looking at investing in these markets because there's a, a greater potential for growth now than there was at the start of the year. I was going to suggest something there. You know, when you're looking around the world and it is just, you know, an absolute basket case situation, you're saying you've got so much going on, the cost of living crisis, you've got a war in Ukraine, you've got all sorts of things going on. And that that impacts upon that volatility just in everyday life, never mind investment. You know, is there a time where you look at an investing and say, right, yes, I can see where the capacity for growth is. And and without taking attitude to risk into it, I can see where the capacity of growth is and I've got the money to invest and I usually have a high attitude to risk. However, the world is such a basket case right now. I'm going to hold off. Is there a, is there a time where, where that is actually the advised course of action? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. I come back to an old saying in investments, it's time in the market, not timing the market that's important when it comes to investments. Um, And basically what we mean by that is if you start trying to get the time right to invest, more than likely you'll get it wrong. So you're far better having the money invested, have it in a diversified portfolio that matches your attitude to risk and Whatever happens, happens because, you know, in a week's time, it may fall, but in a week's time, it could grow. There's so many factors that affect um, returns on portfolios that, you know, you could have an economic crisis in Asia next week, but it wasn't on the cards that that was going to happen. 
or you could have a massive boom in European semiconductors, for example. And then that pushes up the, the value of your investment straight away. So it, it's, it's a really difficult one. And I do get asked that question quite a lot by clients. When's a good time to be investing? And we've got to come back to the fact that the reason why a client's investing and predominantly they're investing money because they're wanting a better return than they're seeing from a cash-based savings account. So I would much rather say, let's invest the money and see how things go rather than trying to time the market and potentially get it wrong. At least if it's invested, you've got the potential for growth. If it's not invested, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get that potential for growth if it's not invested. The flip side of this conversation as well is everybody always wants to, you know, sell when when you know sell when it's high, right? But and 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 uh you look at them and it's going up and up and up and up, and you think, right, when's the point? When is the point that I, I could cash in here? I could say, right, that that's it, that's now. Is there is there a time that you you do that where you say, right, okay, I reckon maybe it's got another couple of you know upward trajectories and it, it might go a, a, a little bit higher, but just to be on the safe side, I'm going to pull now. You know, how do you time that? Yeah, I, I would say it comes back to that phrase, it's time in the market, not so just time in there. the market. It's, it's exactly the same. So yeah. uh, again, we've got, we've got to look at what a client's objectives are. So somebody may be saving for a deposit for a flat. So they may be saving for their child's wedding or or a large purchase going forward. You, you don't know. You, you ask those questions clients when they're setting up investments so if we are getting close to that end goal and things have done very well you then start having that conversation with the client saying well this is where we are just now this is what could happen going forward what are your thoughts on encashing just now uh, or carrying on going now the vast majority of clients i see they don't have that specific goal in mind they are looking for long-term growth or they're looking for income generation from their investments. So in, in that time, I would always be saying we carry on. You know, it doesn't matter if it's doing really well. It's just part of the journey. It might go down, but as long as we are looking at over the medium to long term, positive return that's going to be better than a cash-based savings account, then that's that's exactly what we're looking for for clients. Got it. Okay. Something you said there when you're saying you might be someone saving for a deposit for a house. So these are things that traditionally you think of taking a certain amount of money every month and putting it into the bank. But as you pointed out, you're getting a better return now from this than you are from bank interest. Are you seeing a lot more people sort of coming into the market for these kinds of circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it comes down to time scales. It comes down to, again, attitude to risk, capacity for loss. So many people have been really disappointed about interest rates and bank accounts and savings accounts, even since the banking crisis in 2008. Now, we're 14 years on. We're only now just starting to see little increases in the Bank of England base rate. That's 14 years we've been stuck at, you know, you know, below 1% uh, base rate returns and next to zero interest in savings accounts when inflation is running away with itself just now. So yeah, uh, absolutely. People are, people are looking at 
what are alternative options for me to be investing money in? Okay, we, we've spoken a lot about shares. I know Phil likes diversifying across more than just the stock market and quite often talks about property. Yeah. You, you mentioned commercial property earlier, but generally speaking, property over the longer term is a good return on investment, right? So how can someone diversify in property? Absolutely. It, it's, it's a very interesting alternative investment vehicle. So normally when clients are looking at property, we're looking at buy-to-let property. So we're looking at flats, we're looking at houses. They will then buy, whether it's outright in cash, whether they leverage their own savings by taking out a buy-to-let mortgage to allow them to buy the property. But there are two areas of growth and returns that you can see in, in property. And one is rental income and the other is capital growth. So you would always hope that the value of the property you buy goes up in value. And I'll come to an example in a second. But you would then also get uh, income from that rental. So, you know, in, income's a taxable income. You've got to declare it to HMRC. You've got to do tax returns and that side of things. But again, you're getting this income on top of the potential capital growth. So what a lot of people do, if they're taking out a mortgage, that rental income can effectively pay the mortgage over that period of time. And then they've got that asset there. Now, one of the downsides to property is it's illiquid, as in you cannot access money from that if you needed £10,000 out, for example. So if you needed money out for whatever reason, you can't do that without selling the property and incurring costs. So that is one of the downsides. But I always recommend to clients, yeah, property is fine. But again, we come back to the point, don't put your eggs all in one basket. So if you're all 100% in property, then it's going to be more complicated to get money out. Now, an example I said I'd give, I owned a flat in in Aberdeen. It, it, It wasn't a rental property, it was a flat I lived in. We sold that flat in 2008, just before the banking crisis, the one bedroom flat, and we sold that for £125,000. I saw that same flat was on the market a few months ago for £88,000. So from 2008 to where we are just now, there's been around £40,000 drop in value flat. So it kind of goes to show that Property doesn't always go up in value. It can come down. And there's also all the other issues around having good tenants, making sure it's rented out. If it's not let out, then you've got additional costs that you will then have to pay, mortgage costs, council tax costs, etc. So it isn't this um, fantastic golden investment that maybe homes under the hammer or things like uh, TV shows like that make it look like is just something you need to be aware of what you're getting into and what the positives and negatives would be. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with investing in property if you know where you're going and if you know what you're doing. Okay, here we go into the the sort of wild west of things now, I think. At least that's that's what (laughs) Phil taught me to believe. When you're looking at things like Bitcoin or now here's another one. This is this is new to us. NFTs, NFTs. Now, historically, Phil has been quite reticent to look at this kind of thing. He certainly wasn't all in. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Now, I wonder where he is in this now, and also where you stand in this now, if if you've got different attitudes to it. And also, 
I hate acronyms, Andrew. What even yep. is an NFT? Okay, NFT, non-fungible token. So we'll touch on that just now. Um, basically, the way to look at NFTs is, is a digital art form. There has been a massive premium put on these you know, bits of digital art form that I just, I can't fathom where it's come from. I can't fathom where the value is and how somebody is then going to get their money back going forward. But, you know, there's an argument that it is the new form of, you know, paint art form or, you know, like Da Vinci, Van Gogh, Rembrandt, you know, there's an argument there. Um, do I see it as being a, a great investment? Um, you know, don't get me wrong. A lot of people have made a lot of money out of this, but the the people that are making the money are the people who are selling it initially. So they are the people who have generated the artwork and then they've sold it on to someone. Now, I would be very surprised if that person who has bought the NFT is then able to sell it on again in the future for a profit. That would be my concern, is they've paid a massive premium for this digital art form that then they may be stuck with this NFT that's worthless going forward. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's interesting. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it's great to look at, but it, it, it's even worse than going to a, a casino, in my view. <laughs> but, it, it but Bitcoin, oh, sorry, yeah. Um, it sounds yeah, just just on the NFTs for just for a second. Yeah. First of all, entertain a stupid person and just explain to me what what you mean when you say digital art form. I, yeah, that that's that's a, probably about the best way I can describe it. It would be um, it can be anything. It can be a picture of a house. It can be a monkey wearing a hat. It but can the, be right, but the, the the difference is I'm looking at it on my phone or my iPad rather than yeah. hanging on my wall. Is that is that what you're saying? Hundred percent, and Got and it. it kind of all potentially feeds into this metaverse type futuristic scenario where everything's digital and we'll be putting on VR headsets to do everything. And you know, there there, there was a book written by Ernest Klein, Ready Player One, that goes into a great amount of detail. Of what the future will look like, but that, that that's really where they're going with it. Guess what? I've 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 seen the digital version of that. <laughs> I've seen I've seen the movie, not read the book, but I, books I, yeah, better. yeah. <laughs> books always are in 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 real terms. The, the the thing that crossed my mind when you're talking about digital artwork as well is surely that's going to be so easily shared rather than you know the the, the idea of a painting, for instance, is the exclusivity of it. It's hanging on my wall. And only my wall, digital artwork by its very nature, presumably is built to be shared. So it makes it makes it difficult in in, in that instance as well. It, it sounds like we're sort of in the foothills of getting towards an idea in the same way that the Sinclair C five was in the foothills of getting towards electric cars. Uh, absolutely, and you, you make a really valid point. The part of the NFT, the non fungible token, is it it shouldn't be able to be shared. In a, in a normal way. But for example, you know, we were speaking about you know, normal works of art. So, so like a Picasso, I could go onto Google and I could search for a Picasso painting and then I'll get a picture of that Picasso painting up on my computer. Sure. I can then hit print 
And then I've got a print of a Picasso painting that I can then put up on my wall. Doesn't mean to say I own a Picasso painting, but I've got a copy of it. So that in theory is 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 where NFTs are trying to are, are trying to corner that market. So say, like, well, you actually own it. So any copyright or any use of that, you will then get all the royalties for and then potentially sell it on at a later date. But and that that's the way it's being sold effectively. Yeah, I'm not in. <laughs> no, neither am I. But I, you know, it, it's it's interesting, and we get asked yeah. about it all the time. But yeah, I'm I'm not convinced yet. And when it comes to uh, we were going to go into bitcoins there, but when yes. it comes to any sort of alternative currency, let's say the thing that's always crossed my mind, and I might be reading this wrong, is it's sort of it's like influencer money. So it, people with you know, it's groups will invest in something and all of a sudden it's big because they've all they've all done yeah. it. That's that's what strikes it. It seems artificial. Am I wrong with that? No, you're absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> cryptocurrency is really interesting in the fact that it isn't really anything. It's all theoretical. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, there, there are some things that you can buy with Bitcoin now, but there's heaps of different cryptocurrencies out there you know you can go on to the, the, you know any of the cryptocurrency trading sites and you've got hundreds of different derivatives of cryptocurrency now my concern with cryptocurrency is what use is it going to be going forward it is like any other currency if then we are able to use it properly as a currency more than likely it will then get pegged to the US dollar or the Japanese yen or a euro or sterling. So its volatility will then drop dramatically. You won't get these massive spikes and, and, and drops in value. And then a lot of the fun out of cryptocurrency <laughs> investing that people are doing just now will be gone. And then we're just another currency that people then can use what people really enjoy about cryptocurrency is that it could change in value a hundred percent in two days quite happily so the bit of yeah i'm going to put money in at this price and it could be worth you know you look at bitcoin and the the, the classic example is you know the first ever bitcoin transaction was for two pizzas in america and they paid 10 bitcoins for it which equated to about 20 dollars I can't remember how many years ago that that's now about a fifty thousand dollar pizza that that they bought for for uh, for for ten dollars. So that's the part of cryptocurrency that people enjoy is the volatility, it's the potential for gain. Is it going to be a solid currency going forward? Hard to tell. Yeah, it's the gamble, isn't it? That's the it's, it's the same it's the same part of the brain that gets influenced by gambling, I suspect. Yep. Okay, if you can, then tie tie all this up for me in a neat little bow. What are the, the sort of key takeaways, the things that we need to bear in mind when it comes to diversification? Yeah. So diversification is around spreading the risk. It's around looking at what your overall objectives are for your investments and then ensuring we've got as many different asset classes covered as possible so that we can smooth out the volatility that you may have by just having things invested in 
one company or one share. So that that that's the the basis of diversification. And just in in terms of going back to what we were talking about there, the sort of well the West aspect of of Bitcoin and NFTs. Is that something that you would ever recommend to a client in terms of diversification, that that part of it? No, never, because it's it's unregulated. Okay. So when we are providing investment advice, everything that we do is regulated by, by the Financial Conduct Authority. Basically, if you're going down that route, you're doing it on your own and it's against the advice of a financial advisor because the potential for you to lose money is is very, very high. You know, If a client wants to do that, that's their fun money. You know, yeah. that's the money that they can afford to lose, like you would take £50 to a casino, £100 yeah. to a casino. If you walk away without that money, okay, it's not the end of the world. And you should think of Bitcoin NFTs as exactly the same. Okay. Or just taking it into your back garden and setting it alight. Yeah, right. okay. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way to do it. Yeah, we always do this bit with Phil. He gets a lot of inspiration through various people he admires and, and he loves a quote. So I'm wondering if you've got a quote this week on diversification, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. So this quote comes from a chap called Robert Kiyosaki, and I hope I've pronounced that correctly. So the, the quote goes, it's not how much money you make, but how much money you keep, how hard it works for you and how many generations you keep it for. Wow. Brilliant. Very good. That's uh, not a bad debut in the quote scene there, I think. Um, now, Phil is, is always very keen on trying to help with uh, with financial queries. And if you want to email a question, just please do. As always, we can ask him anonymously if you wish. Let's get on to this week's contact details coming up. Now, these people didn't know that you were going to be here, Andrew, so I'm, I'm sorry they are addressed to Phil, but you know, That's okay. don't, take, don't take that personally. No. Uh, hi, Phil. I'm trying to help out my dad with his pensions. He's got four or five and says, as he's getting older, it becomes more difficult to know what's what. He says, you can put them all into one account, and that'd be easier for him. But I remember you saying, that's not always the best policy. How can you tell? Yeah, and we've always got to come back to what's best for the client that sat in front of us. Now, I get a lot of clients that are in exactly the same position. I'm dealing with clients like this on a day-to-day basis. They're feeling they have no control over where their pensions are the performance of the pensions or just what the big picture is. So a lot of clients do like having it in one place. So they know, right, okay, this is my pension. This is how much it's worth. And it can then be controlled by a financial advisor going forward. So there is full control over the growth. Now, where that may not be the best idea is if they're performing very well, you know, you're moving it for the sake of moving it. And the only person that's benefiting from that is a financial advisor. So if they're performing really well, if their costs are very low where they are at the moment, again, we've got to look at what's best for the client. So, you know, for myself as an advisor, I would look at the pensions, how they're set up, how the investments are structured. I would look at, because there can also be guarantees built into, especially some of the older plans that if you transfer it into a pot, into one pot, you're giving up those guarantees. So when we're looking at pension transfers, or if we're looking at amalgamating things together, we're getting all the information from the providers. So I know the costs, how it's set up, and are there any guarantees in place? If there are guarantees in place, then we have that conversation with the client to say, 
this is the guarantee, they may not be aware of it, and then whether it should be moved or not. So in some situations, yeah, absolutely having it in one place would be great. There are pitfalls that they need to be aware of, but we would talk them through the whole process and try and get things as condensed as possible without them losing out on uh, on any benefits. Okay, yeah. Going back to pensions, we, we've done a few shows on pensions and I, I sort of taken stuff through osmosis. The, the ones that you're talking about there where there might be guarantees built in, is this the sort of stuff that they, they would refer to as the, like the old gold-plated pensions where you actually got a lot more bang for your buck in the, in the early days than you do now? Yeah, 100%. There can be known enough. There can be a few different guarantees. Um, some are, are known as final salary pensions. The, the technical term is defined benefit pension or a DB pension. Um, I know acronyms are not ideal, but anyway. <laughs> um, so defined benefit pension is known as a, 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 a it's, yeah, it's, it's a gold-plated pension. It's a guarantee to pay an index-linked income. So go up in line with inflation every year without any risk to yourself at all for the rest of your life. And you also tend to find there's a survivor's pension. So a, a spouse or partner will also be able to benefit from that pension in the event of your death. So, you know, if you're giving up that, you need to be fully aware of what's going on. Now, that they tend to be quite well signposted, but there's also some other guarantees. Uh, it's a thing called guaranteed minimum pension and guaranteed annuity rates that some pre-1988 pensions may have. So again, these are things that we look into. So guaranteed minimum pension is just like a final salary pension. It's a guarantee to pay out X amount for the rest of your life, index linked. Guaranteed annuity rate is slightly different. But again, this is what uh, expert like ourselves would go into with a client to determine is that is that something that um, is in your pension scheme that you need to be aware of yeah so what's in your best interest it's a little bit here i mean when we're talking about this person trying to help out their dad with with he reckons he's got about four or five pensions chances are it might be that you say well we could take these three yep. and consolidate those but you don't want to touch those two because you've got certain promises on there that that will Yes. be lost if you if you go and cash them in and move them around so 100 yeah yeah. Got, yeah all right next up here's one from uh, from debbie in dunbar she says hi phil i've been left a property it's a five-bedroom house by a relative who's passed away whatever happens from here we know the house needs some cosmetic work before it goes on the market i also know i don't want to live there but can you recommend whether it's better to sell or lease it out at the moment there's no mortgage on the property yeah, it, it's, a, again, really good question. Um, what should somebody do with any asset, whether it be a property, whether it be an investment, etc.? It comes down to what your long-term aspirations for this is. Now, it could be that, Debbie, you're, you're looking for this to boost up your income just now. And you could say, well, an extra £1,500, however much you'd be able to let out for, it's going to be really, really useful for you just now. So letting it out may be the best option. Or you know, you could say, well, for the next five, 10 years, I want an extra income from this. So we'll let it out. And that's great. It may be that you need the capital of the property sooner. You may want to do other things with the money. Whatever the value is of that, when it's sold, 
you can then do whatever you want with it. Um, you know, it could be paying off an existing mortgage. It could be investing the money. It could be buying a holiday home in Spain, for example. So it really all comes down to what your objectives are for that asset and what you would like the asset to do for you going forward. But there isn't a right or wrong answer. It just depends on what your objectives are going forward. Okay. I would just say, well, before you get in touch with the question, you might want to take a look at our back catalogue. We actually just did one on the mortgage market update. And I seem to remember it's a bit of a seller's market just now. Not that I'm trying to influence you in any way, shape or form, but, you know, have a look at our back catalogue. We've covered a lot of topics and we may have touched on what you're interested in. I'm John Ellis. Thank you for joining us for the UK Personal Finance Show with Phil Anderson. Scratch that. Andrew Schooler for this week. If you feel you need a helping hand with anything we've been discussing or anything else of a monetary matter, find Phil for Finance. Search Phil Anderson Financial Services online or join the Facebook group for the show. Search Personal Finance Community. That's Personal Finance Community on Facebook. Phil's on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Or why not email Phil a question that he can answer on a future show? His address is phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. That's phil at philandersonfinancial.co.uk. Send him your question and Phil could be answering it in an upcoming podcast, like I say. And please be assured we won't use your real name if that's what you prefer. Remember, if you found this useful, please rate and recommend us and please follow us on Apple or whatever you get your podcast. That way you'll get us every week with the info you want when you need it. You'll get all the links you need on Phil's social media. Good luck with your money. Phil's doing his best to help make that cash go further. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening.